Well, please open your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 3. And we're going to read that portion together. It's a familiar account of the three boys thrown into the fiery furnace and the fourth man walking with them and God miraculously saving them. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. But the reason I want us to read that together is because I think that chapter will help you understand what God was doing for 600 years before Jesus was born. We're in week four of our eight part series, overviewing the whole Bible. And in the last 200 years of the Old Testament, and then 400 years of silence after the end of the Old Testament, before the birth of Christ, 600 years before the birth of Christ, God was mainly keeping a faithful remnant of believers for himself in the midst of incredible opposition. Tremendous odds. And God was holding his people fast. It's like John Newton's familiar hymn, Amazing Grace, and that line that we can all hum in our hearts, even as I say it, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. As you think of Daniel chapter 3 and three boys in a fiery furnace who wouldn't bow the knee to Nebuchadnezzar's pagan statue, you could think of Esther in the Persian kingdom not cowering down in the midst of great opposition. You could think of Daniel in other places, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. You could think of Malachi and the other prophets who stood firm in the face of fierce opposition. You know the account, but it's gotta be one of the best parts of today's sermon because it's God's undiluted word without Jordan saying anything added or subtracted from it. Daniel chapter three, Verse one, hear the word of the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width six cubits. That's 90 feet tall and nine feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Go to verse three. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, verse four, then the herald loudly proclaimed, to you the command is given, O peoples, nations and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Verse seven, therefore at that time, now to the end of the verse, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshiped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Skip to verse 12. The Chaldeans go to Nebuchadnezzar and say, there are three guys who are not obeying your orders. Verse 12. They said, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar in rage and anger gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men were brought before the king. 
Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of all the instruments, go to the end of verse 15, all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image that I've made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? 16, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. 21, then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 23, but these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded. He stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, was it not three men we cast into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, certainly, O king, 25. He said, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men, the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their house is reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. Today's sermon begins five and a half centuries before the birth of Jesus. And it concludes on the eve before the angel announces to Mary that she will carry the Son of God in her womb. 
Week number four, eight-part series, Sing God's Story, Overview the Whole Bible with a Christ-centered focus. In this message, we're going to make our way to the end of the Old Testament. And then that deafening four-century-long silence between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New with the arrival of Jesus. And we're going to continue to see one dominating theme that unifies the story of the whole Bible. That is the Lord God through his Christ is graciously building a kingdom of redeemed people for their joy and for his glory. If you want to know what happened for 600 years before Jesus was born, what God was doing, I think a faithful succinct answer would be this. He was keeping a faithful remnant like those three boys. God was preserving true believers in the midst of hellacious attacks against them. And he was preparing the world for the Messiah who would save his people. That's mainly what God was doing in the world for the centuries preceding the birth of Christ. This sermon picks up 586 BC. Judah has just been carried away into captivity by Babylon. Things do not look good. And in today's portion, Judah is enabled to return from captivity back to Jerusalem, rebuild the city, its walls, the temple. And we're going to see again and again, like these three boys in that fiery furnace, the answer to King Nebuchadnezzar's question, I don't think he ever understood it. But he said, What kind of God saves like this? He he said, there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Meaning, what kind of God gets into the fire with his people? What, What kind of God goes into judgment with his people? What kind of God lets his people come out of wrath with no clothes burned, with no hair singed, not smelling like smoke, no judgment on them, all judgment on him. What kind of God saves like that? Well, instead of reading a smattering of passages, the front end of the sermon in addition to the Daniel text will turn to quite a few in the few moments we'll spend together at the end of the Old Testament. I want you to hear John Newton help us again. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. Tis grace has brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. God will keep his people for himself. Before we jump into our points, let's ask for his help one more time. Father, thank you for overcoming every obstacle to the faith of your people. Everything that would tempt us to fall away, everything that would look like it's too hard to keep believing, thank you for overcoming every obstacle to the faith of your people. As our Old Testament brothers and sisters were invaded and captured and taken as slaves to pagan nations, even when they returned and were surrounded by more godless people outside their country and even within, Even when many, if not most, who appeared to be true believers soon gave their allegiance to false gods and no doubt the true believers had to be tempted 
to trade on Jesus also. Thank you, God, for preserving a remnant of true believers for yourself. Thank you that in eternity past, you gave your son a bride and in time he came and paid her redemption price and you will see to it that all of his people are happy with him forever. Thank you for preserving our faith. Like our Old Testament siblings who trusted you in the midst of a pagan culture, we too look to your son. We look to our savior. We thank you that he came to purchase our redemption. Even when it looked like to many people you had forgotten your kingdom promises. When you were silent for 400 years, we thank you that you did not forget one good promise you made and you signed them, yes and amen, in the blood of your risen son. Please keep our eyes on Jesus. Don't let us walk away from the faith. And we say that with an acute sensitivity, living in the midst of loved ones we know who have. Oh God, keep us for yourself. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So at the end of last week's sermon, the divided kingdoms had been taken captive. Israel to Assyria, never to return again. Judah to Babylon to come back 70 years later. Before we dive into what happened in that return from captivity for Judah, I just want to remind us why those captivities happened. The big lesson God was teaching us people last year is that sin is very serious to God. The cross is the exclamation point behind that sentence. But why did they get carried away into captivity? If you want to do some Bible flipping, this is your first opportunity. First Chronicles 5, verse 25. Why did Assyria get taken away in 722? First Chronicles 5, 25. They acted treacherously against the God of their fathers and played the harlot after the gods of the peoples of the land whom God had destroyed before them. Verse 26, so the God of Israel stirred up the king of Assyria and he carried them away into exile. Wait a minute, what? The God of heaven stirred the heart of the king of Assyria to attack, conquer, and capture Israel for their disobedience? Yes, God was sovereign over that. The same for Judah. If you want to go to Ezra chapter 5, you could look at verse 12. Because their fathers had provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who destroyed their temple and deported their people. Nebuchadnezzar was a pawn in the hand of Almighty God to bring his remedial judgment on his disobedient people, Judah. Yes. There's never been a nation in the history of the world over which Jesus is not reigning, ruling. He's turning the heart of ever, every king like channels of water wherever he wants it to go. And he's doing it all even to preserve a faithful remnant. So in today's message, we want to look at three things that happened in the last 600 years before Jesus was born. What happened under captivity for Judah? When Nebuchadnezzar came, Babylon came, they destroyed the city. They took the people captive. They were there for 70 years. What happened? And then in their return, 
That'll be part two. And then finally, from the end of the Old Testament to the birth of Christ, what was God doing? So first, under captivity, God's people during captivity, when Judah was exiled to Babylon, God graciously raised up prophets to minister his word to the Jews, even in that foreign land. While they were there, God was raising up prophets. For example, Daniel, who we just read from. He was taken away to Babylon in the first deportation before the city was destroyed in 586. Daniel got carried away in the initial wave, 605. He was a prophet whose ministry happened mainly in Babylon. He was a Jew. He became an advisor to the king, to Nebuchadnezzar. He even interpreted his dream. He wrote of those three Hebrew boys who he knew very well, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And you remember that that fire was so intense in that furnace that it killed the guards who threw those boys into it. But miraculously, the boys were preserved by the presence of the fourth man who got into the furnace with them. After the deportation, after Daniel gets to Babylon, he lives and ministers in that pagan place. Pretty much the entire duration of Judah's captivity, he demonstrated a remarkable trust in the Lord, even in the face of severe threats. You'll remember he himself was tossed into a den of lions from which God miraculously saved him. And from his prominent position in Babylon, he interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream his dream is so significant for understanding the 400 years of silence between the Testaments. It was about a four metal image, different types of metals, four of them. He explained the meaning of the writing on the wall, Daniel did. He escaped the mouths of lions. He wrote down prophecies that would be fulfilled during that intertestamental period. So God raised up Daniel to tell God's people what God was up to and to point them to him even in the midst of their captivity. He also raised up Ezekiel. Ezekiel was part of the second deportation from Judah to Babylon, 597 BC. Daniel was already there, Ezekiel comes to the scene. He was a Jewish captive, he lived in Babylon. His main emphasis, what do you tell people when they're slaves, living in a place they don't wanna be? surrounded by people they don't like that don't like them. And God gives you a message. What would you say to them? You wanna know the main thing Ezekiel said through a series of visions? God's going to carry out his sovereign plan. How's he gonna do that, Ezekiel? He's gonna rule, rule over and through every nation. While he's living in Babylon, he's telling God's people under captivity to them that God is going to rule over Babylon for his purposes. That's bold. He's going to carry out his kingdom plan. And then Ezekiel was privileged to tell them it's better than you can possibly imagine. It's called the new covenant. You can turn to Ezekiel 36 if you want to see how Ezekiel said it starting in verse 24. Ezekiel 36, 24 for I will take you from the nations. I will gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Verse 25, Ezekiel 36, 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness 
and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you. This is God speaking. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. Man, that would have been a precious message to any true believer who had been taken captive into Babylon. So God raises up Daniel and he ministers in Babylon. God raises up Ezekiel. He ministers in Babylon. God raises up Jeremiah, but he doesn't minister in Babylon. It's during that time of deportation, but Jeremiah decided to stay put. He's still in Jerusalem. He's not going anywhere. And Ezekiel and Daniel are prophesying here and Jeremiah stays put here. While Jeremiah is there, he watches with his own eyes as the city is absolutely decimated and destroyed. The temple is ransacked and obliterated. God's honor has been laid low. Pagan peoples are sacrificing to their idolatrous deities in front of his face. And it crushes his heart. He writes the book of Lamentations, the lament. That's why Jeremiah's nickname is the weeping prophet. He's heartbroken because God's name is not being honored among God's people as it should. And even during brokenhearted Jeremiah's weeping prophet ministry, he eventually packs up. He wasn't carried away. He opted to go. And he flees down to Egypt. And from Egypt, he's reminding people of the exact same thing down in North Africa that Ezekiel's reminding Judah of in Babylon. What's he telling them? God's new covenant promise. Look at Jeremiah 31. This is what Jeremiah's telling them. Verse 34. I'm sorry, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Verse 33. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For, here's the ground clause, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That's why Jerusalem was a pile of rubble because the sin of God's people and God said, I'm going to forgive them and I'm going to dwell in them and I'm going to be their God and they're going to be my people and nobody's going to be able to break this covenant. The Lord Jesus is obviously the fulfillment of the new covenant promises that Ezekiel in Babylon and Jeremiah eventually in Egypt was making to God's people. That's what's happening during the captivity. Number two, what happens when they come back? The captives come back to Jerusalem. God's remnant is enabled to return. 
the powerful, proud Babylonians like every other nation in the history of the world thus far appeared like an unstoppable force that could not be defeated. But as God has been pleased to do many times and will soon do again and we'll watch it with our own eyes, the Babylonians were conquered by another force, the Persians. The proud Babylonians fell to the Persians in 539 B.C. In God's providence, and I want to say it again because you are listening to me like a preacher on a late Sunday afternoon. In God's providence, the Persians had enlightened policies. I don't make those Jewish people our slaves. We're too good for that. And in God's providence, the Persians boasting of their enlightened policies prided themselves on ruling in a more advanced way than those inferior antiquated Babylonians. So one of their advanced ways in God's providence called for policies that allowed for the Jews to return to their homeland. King Cyrus of Persia became God's instrument because God had King Cyrus's heart on puppet strings. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and King Cyrus became God's instrument for thousands of Jews to migrate home to Jerusalem. Even during the time of the Persian Empire, they began that migration back in 536 BC, precisely 70 years after the first deportation that Daniel was part of. And when they returned, what did God do? He raised up Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra taught and preached God's law. Nehemiah led the people to rebuild the city, particularly the wall around it. The Lord also raised up other prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. This is in the return group to Judah, Jerusalem. The Lord also raised up others like Governor Zerubbabel who led the people to complete the rebuilding of the temple, which was completed exactly 70 years after Solomon's temple was destroyed, 586. It was completed in 516, fulfilling Jeremiah's promise and prophecy. So let me just tell you a little bit about those people. Ezra and Nehemiah, they're in one category. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, they're in another category. These are historical books, these are prophetic books. Ezra and Nehemiah, what happened? Ezra first. Spiritual reform, true revival, if you will. The Spirit of God moving among the people of God for the honor of God. A lot of grace in a little space. Real revival, people becoming truly God-centered again as they should have been before they were taken captive. The initial wave of Jews that returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt the city and the temple were especially privileged because God raised up among them Ezra. He was in that second wave of people that returned. And what did Ezra do? How did God use him? He reestablished the Mosaic law and he put away the practice of intermarriage between God's people and pagans. If you have your Bible, look at Nehemiah chapter eight, verse one. Nehemiah eight, one. 
All the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Verse two, then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Verse four, Ezra the scribe stood at the wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose. Go to verse five. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when the people, uh, I'm sorry, when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great, uh, the great God. And all the people answered, amen, amen. While lifting up their hands, then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, a number of other people, go to the middle of verse seven, explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. Verse eight, they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. You see what Ezra did, don't you? He brought God's word to bear on God's people. And if you think our sermons are long, they got nothing on Mr. Ezra, right? From morning till midday. But explaining the word of God to give the sense so that people understood its meaning. God's word is precisely what we need to know, but it's like this tightly bound package. And he raises up prophets and now preachers and teachers who are to unfold what is there so that we can see it or to use this phrase to understand the reading. Not only in Nehemiah 8 does Ezra preach God's word to God's people and it is a provocation for true spiritual revival. In Ezra chapter 9 and 10, he prays one of the greatest prayers of confession. If you have habitual sin in your life and you've prayed 10,000 times your sinner's prayer version of help me get out of this sin, just stick your nose in Ezra 9 and 10 and let that become your prayer. His prayer of contrition and confession on behalf of the people who had intermarried with pagans. That's how God used Ezra. At the same time, he raises up his buddy Nehemiah. Nehemiah shows up in Jerusalem from Babylon after Ezra. And when Nehemiah hears a report a very discouraging report about the city of Jerusalem. He's heartbroken. If you haven't read Nehemiah's prayer, Nehemiah 1, I commend it to you. Nehemiah was an associate of the Persian king, Artaxerxes, who permitted Nehemiah to leave, take a leave of absence and go to Jerusalem. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9. And when he got there, he commenced to coordinating a massive plan to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. There was a lot of resistance to Nehemiah's wall rebuilding project, just like there had been resistance to the temple rebuilding project, which by the way, was the first thing God's people did when they got there. They didn't rebuild the temple, but they set up the altar before they rebuilt the walls. Another sermon for another day, but this is the reason, and it's a principle replete in scripture, worship is the war. If you protect yourself from out there and your heart is not up there, you lost. 
So they worship first, they build second. Sanballat, the governor of Samaria to the north of Jerusalem. Tobiah, the Persian appointed governor to the east of the Jordan River. Sanballat and Tobiah both fiercely opposed Nehemiah, his rebuild project, and all of God's people. They also did a smear campaign, same kind of politics as you see today. No real policy plan, just smear your opponent so you get more votes. Samballot and Tobiah portrayed Nehemiah as an enemy and a rebel against Persia. Remember, he was Artaxerxes' right-hand man. And amazingly, providentially, because even if it sounds like a sermon that's basically a history class, you need to know that the God of the universe to whom you profess to belong rules over nations and peoples. Nehemiah, with all the opposition, was enabled by God to lead the people to set up an armed guard strategy to protect the workers while they worked around the clock to rebuild the wall. And I say miraculously because they rebuilt the whole thing in 52 days, Nehemiah 6.15. As soon as the wall was rebuilt, God used Ezra to teach the people continually the meaning of God's word. And he reinstated the Feast of Tabernacles, which remembered God's past mercies to Israel. He led the people in a solemn assembly to renew their covenant with God. He led the people who live to live under God's covenant stipulations, especially the Sabbath. He excluded all foreigners from coming in to the courts of God's people. In no uncertain terms, true revival occurred under the ministry of Ezra and Nehemiah in Jerusalem in the mid 400s BC. That's Ezra and Nehemiah. But I said Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, historic, prophetic. These are the historical narratives. What were the prophets doing? Haggai was a friend of the second king of Persia, Darius. And Darius permitted Haggai to return to Jerusalem about 20 years after the initial group returned. And when he got there, he said, your spiritual walk looks like it's moving the right direction. The walls of your city are looking great. But the temple's still in ruins. And God used Haggai to oversee a temple rebuilding project. He started to tell the people that the glory of the second temple would surpass the glory of the first temple. Go to Ezra chapter 3, verse 10. Ezra 3.10. This is before Haggai shows up. When the first wave of people got from Babylon to Jerusalem, this is what happened. Verse 10, Ezra 3. When the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priest stood with their apparel, trumpets, and the Levites, sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They sang, praising, giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Verse 12, yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy. Why did the old people weep and the young people shout? 
for joy because the old people could see, oh, that's the foundation of the temple we're going to rebuild. It doesn't even compare to the first temple. And then it sat there for 20 years with no building on it because it was a lot of resistance. So God sends Haggai. And when he gets there, Haggai starts saying, no, 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 no. The glory of the second temple is going to surpass the glory of the first temple. No need to weep. And that was ultimately fulfilled 400 years later when the true temple went to that temple. When the Lord Jesus Christ as an eight-day-old baby boy went to the second temple and filled it with the presence of the glory of God. The ministry of Haggai was to rebuild the temple, Zechariah, and then Malachi. Zechariah ministered in Jerusalem alongside, alongside Haggai. The city was still in ruins from the destruction that Nebuchadnezzar had wrought. The walls were rebuilt under Haggai's ministry. The temple was rebuilt, but the city itself was still in ruins. His message was this. Zechariah, he had near and far. He had right now and ultimate. God would dwell in Jerusalem with his people. And he would really do it, here's Zechariah's way of putting it, when the king comes into the city, humble, riding on a donkey, who's going to be pierced for the transgressions of his people. He's going to dwell here now. But just wait till he comes in a way nobody expects. Humble, mounted on a donkey. You will see him whom you have pierced. Christ Jesus, the ultimate fulfillment. And then finally, Malachi, last book of your Old Testament. He didn't return from Babylon to Judah, to Jerusalem, most likely. He was probably born in Jerusalem or somewhere in Judah after the exiles started returning. After Nehemiah's ministry, after Ezra's ministry, Malachi's born God in His mercy raises him up as the final prophet of the Old Testament. If you compare the books of, a lot of books of the Bible are like this, Colossians and Ephesians, their mirror letters have a lot of the exact same verses. Malachi and Nehemiah are a lot like that. And they both show us that God wanted to use those prophets to confront the same sins. Your priesthood is corrupt, Malachi 1 and 2, Nehemiah 13. The people show up to the temple, but they don't give anything. They withhold their tithe from the Lord, Malachi 3, Nehemiah 10. Jewish men are marrying pagan wives, Malachi 2, Nehemiah 10 and 13. And Malachi's core message was, yes, your sin is serious, but don't think that God's going to be prevented from carrying out his kingdom purposes, Malachi 1.11, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord will be great among all the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to his name and a grain offering that is pure for God speaking, my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. It's Malachi's main message. 
He meant no words about the people breaking sacrificial laws, divorcing their spouses, neglecting to give their money to the work of God's kingdom. That was all sin for God's people in Malachi's day. But the crescendo of his message, the end of your Old Testament, 400 years before Jesus was born, was this note. The Lord would send, quote, his messenger who would make all things right. Look at Malachi chapter three, verse one, if you have your Bible. I'm gonna send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. That's John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. That's Jesus. The messenger of the covenant in whom, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That prophecy wouldn't be fulfilled for another 400 plus years. When in the fullness of time, God would send forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem us from the curse of the law. So the Old Testament's over now. And we're still 400 years before Jesus was born. And in those 400 years, God was not doing nothing. God was raising up nations and laying them low, but using them in their times of prominence to prepare the world for the coming of Jesus. I think Dr. Easley in his biblical history book convincingly gets it right that Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a four metal image is about the four kingdoms that would rise between Babylon and Jesus and how God was reigning over them to carry out his purposes. First, it was Babylon, we've heard about them. Second, it was Persia, we've heard about them, but I'll add one note, the book of Esther. That's the only book of the Bible that tells us what life was like for the Jewish people outside the land of Israel under Persian rule. Esther, you know, was selected in the king's beauty pageant to be his wife. Her identity as a Jew was concealed until after the time Haman had concocted a plan to exterminate the Jews after which Esther's identity as a Jew was revealed to the king. Haman and his sinister plot to exterminate the Jews was made known at a banquet through Esther to the king, who eventually, Haman, was hanged on his own gallows. God's name is not mentioned in the book of Esther famously, but his divine fingerprints are on every single verse. From Esther winning that royal beauty pageant, to God's providential care for his people, to Haman having all the Jews set up for destruction, to Esther's Jewish identity being revealed, to Esther exposing Haman's plot, to Haman's death on his own gallows, to Mordecai, Esther's relative becoming the prime minister of all of Persia. But also, I think the main point, when God saved his people in the book of Esther, he did it coinciding to uh, a day called Purim, so the Jews celebrate the Feast of Purim. That coincides to the Leviticus 16 Day of Atonement. The same day God saved his people, the same day God required a sacrifice for the sins of his people. It's all a pointer to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be a little girl in pagan Persia. You may be three boys getting thrown into a fiery furnace. 
You may be Jeremiah weeping your heart out as you watch the fulfillment of the promises, uh, prophecies that you have declared with all your might come to fruition because God's people won't turn from their sin. And right in the midst of it, in Babylon, in Persia, in Judah, in Jerusalem, in North Africa, in Egypt, what do we see? God is preserving a remnant of his faithful people for himself. The Babylons, the Persians, then the Greeks. The Greeks come to power. This is probably Daniel 2, 7, and 8, the goat from the west, the third kingdom. Their prominence was unparalleled and still only lasted less than 100 years. They infiltrated the world with a common trade language, Greek, Koine Greek, common Greek. Everybody could speak it and trade in it. And no sooner than they rose to power and propagated their Greek deities all over the planet, from Alexander the Great, who caused Hellenization, Greek-speaking language and cultures to go throughout the world. Less than 100 years later, they were decimated by the Romans. 63 years before Jesus was born, Rome comes to power. But the Greeks, before the Romans obliterated them, not only Hellenized the world, got Greek culture and language and customs everywhere, they also set themselves in the crosshairs of God's judgment because one of their emperors, Antiochus Epiphanes, reigned from 175 to 163, dedicated the temple in Jerusalem to Zeus. He forbid circumcision and Sabbath keeping he started having his priests offer pigs every single day on the temple altar, which Daniel 11.31 calls the abomination of desolation. His soldiers used the temple in Jerusalem as a brothel. And no nation that fights against God will stand. And so the Romans came. They had brilliant military strategists their leaders, Pompey, led Rome, overtaking the world, all the way down to Herod. Rome dominated the landscape with technological advance, infrastructure, they put roads everywhere. You could speak a language that everybody understood Greek and you could get anywhere you needed to go on the Roman roads. So here's our close. What was God doing in the final 600 years before Jesus was born. I believe the main thing he was doing was preserving a faithful remnant in the midst of incredible opposition. Like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, God's people were able to sing. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Every day, when most people couldn't see it, definitely couldn't explain it, certainly didn't understand it every single day, just like he's doing in your life right now if you belong to Christ. 
God was providing everything necessary for those who were truly his people to have both spiritual and physical preservation and the propagation of the Lord's name throughout the whole earth. I didn't even say anything about the synagogues that started peppering the earth for the propagation of God's name during those 400 years. That's what God was doing. So what should you do? We've made our way to the evening before the angel shows up to a teenage girl named Mary. God has been keeping all of his promises. What should you do? Two things. Give your life to Jesus. He is the Savior that God has promised in the pages of the Old Testament. And his purposes marched forward in sequence, right down one straight line with no deviation in the midst of incredible opposition. God cannot be stopped. Give your life to Jesus. He is the Savior God promised in the pages of the Old Testament, as next week's sermon will clearly indicate. By the way, we're not clever enough to make next week's sermon fall on Christmas weekend. We just said, let's do an eight-part series of reviewing the Bible after we finish our last series in Joshua. Thank you, Lord, for letting it fall there. That's the first thing you should do. Give your life to Jesus. Number two, get to know the God of the Bible. Read the Old Testament prophets with a keen eye toward their eternal hope for God's people in the Savior that he promised to send to them like the last page of your Old Testament promises to send God's messenger. His name is J-E-S-U-S. On Christmas Eve, Lord willing, Saturday, we're going to hear about the fulfillment of every promise God ever made. How he made the promises of old and he kept them in Jesus of Nazareth, the long-awaited Messiah. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we ask that you would cause the things that I've said that were true to be seared in our hearts and minds. Help us to understand your story. And anything I said that was out of line with Scripture cause us to forget it forever. But I do pray especially, more than a history lesson, more than getting our chronology straight, you get our hearts right with you. The big problem in Israel and Judah was the sin in the hearts of the people. And the great need was God-centered worship purchased by Jesus and his sacrifice. That's the same thing today, Lord. Deal with our sin. Don't let us continue in it. Don't let us be so foolish that we'll just keep barreling down a path when we can see in your word time and again, you're not going to compromise. And at the same time, Lord, as you expose us and reveal to us all that displeases you, we ask especially that you will magnetize us to Jesus, the only hope for sinners. And you'll cause us through him, with him, in him to praise you as we ought to glorify you as we should for our joy and for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.